Hello, 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 and welcome, guys, to season three of Sheep Thrills. My name is Emily Lamb. I am very excited to be back in the studio after a little bit of a break. Um, and again, my third semester of Sheep Thrills. We're we're really in it now. Um, new time, same place, Saturdays at 8 a.m. It's early. It's early for me. I am not a morning person, but, you know, I'm making it here for you guys. I'm up, I'm awake, I'm enthusiastic, I did some jumping jacks on the way here, um, so we're, you know, we're ready to go, ready to go, lot to talk about, and if you think that I was insane on Monday evenings after I just had class, like, this is just gonna be my truly, like, unfiltered self Monday, or excuse me, Saturday at 8am, because I just simply have not been awake long enough to develop a real filter, so... This is going to be, yeah, this is going to be an interesting experiment for all of us. Um, so anyway, if you're joining me live, 8 a.m., I appreciate you so much. Grab your coffee, grab your breakfast, do whatever you need to do. Settle in. Um, so yes, we do have a lot to talk about. Um, it was a very eventful, oh, you know what? Let me, you know, I'm, I'm sliding back into um, me at the end of the semester. I should probably introduce myself, introduce the show. Again, my name is Emily Lamb. Um, I am a sophomore at GW studying political science, uh, and this is Sheep Thrills, a political talk show. Um, the thing I do every season, just to preface my life and, and, and everything you're going to hear for the next hour, this is generally all my opinions. This is not a news show. I talk about the news, but I'm talking about my opinion on things. I'm, I very clearly impose all of my own bias on all of these stories. So if you don't like my opinion, that's all good. I'm not presenting it as fact. I'm just saying that, they, you know, this is what I believe uh, in terms of all these things. If you disagree with me and you see me on the street, let me know and we can have a conversation. Um, so anyway, just putting that out there uh, first and foremost is that do not take my word as law. Although in some situations you probably should because you know, they are my opinions, but my opinions are always right. So there you go. Um, anyway, getting back into it. It's been a very eventful month or so since we last talked. Don't have time to go through every little thing because honestly, like the month of December and the month of January were extremely eventful um, in a way that they probably shouldn't have been. I don't know why January uh, had so much going on when it's usually that like dead month before we, we really like transition into the into the year. But a lot happened. Again, don't have time to talk about every little thing. We're talking about the main big strokes um, that happened over the last month. First, we're going to talk about voting rights legislation and uh, what's going on in the Senate. Then we're going to talk about uh, Ukraine and Russia and bubbling tensions there. Um, and then we're going to talk about uh, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer finally deciding to resign from the Supreme Court. And then, of course, we're going to talk about Joe Biden and a potential hot mic situation that may or may not have occurred. Uh, so getting right into it, first story I want to cover uh, this week is uh, the Senate and voting rights legislation. So I talked a lot last semester about Build Back Better um, and about the kind of charting its progress through the House and then through the Senate and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, but then it, once it got to the Senate, we talked a lot about... Um, you know, the fact that it was just a little bit too much too fast for um, representative or senators uh, cinema and mansion. And so we just weren't sure if anything was actually going to end up happening with that piece of legislation. Currently, it looks like Build Back Better is a little bit dead in the Senate. 
highly unfortunate, kind of big embarrassment for Senate leaders um, and kind of Democratic leadership overall. And so in, in kind of the wake of that, the Senate leaders had to decide, okay, what's, what's the next course of action? What's the next um, thing we're going to pursue in terms of, of legislation? And the next big priority they wanted to talk about um, was voting rights. And this was a big campaign promise. This has become a really big issue over the last year with, you know, I talk, I've talked about in the past, um, different states kind of creating uh, very restrictive voting rights legislation. And so the, the federal government has had a lot of pressure, and specifically the Democratic majority, has had a lot of pressure to kind of push back on that legislation that's been coming out uh, with all of those different states. So federal voting rights legislation, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, kind of it's, it's like a whole swath of um, uh, election and voting reforms. I'm not going to get into all the specifics because it doesn't really matter. But the point is, it's basically something that probably all the Democrats are going to going to support. There's more um, likelihood for Cinema and Manchin to support that legislation. And there is zero Republican support because the 50 Republicans in the Senate are not going to support legislation to make it easier to vote. Because when you make it easier to vote, more Democrats vote and then they're going to be out of a job. Not saying that they have any kind of ulterior motives, but they have some ulterior motives. Um, but anyway, they so Schumer was like, "Here's this voting rights legislation. We want to get this passed, um, but they needed 60 votes, obviously, to override the Republican filibuster on that legislation. They have 50 votes. They definitely, definitely do not have 60 votes. So." Our good old friend, the filibuster, comes back into play. And of course, one of the other major pushes um, for Republic or Democratic leadership in the Senate um, from activists and from just like a lot of different people has been, why do we have the filibuster in the first place? Let's just get rid of it all together. Um, so I think Schumer was like, all right, here's a, you know, two birds, one stone kind of situation we'll kill the filibuster, and we'll um, pass voting rights legislation. Of course, you need 60 votes to get rid of the filibuster or to cause like any kinds of rule changes. They don't have that. They don't even have 50 votes because Cinema and Manchin have both stated that they're not going to um, vote to make pretty much any changes to the filibuster. Although I think, now that I think about it, I think Cinema has come out and said that she would support... Um, like reinstating the talking filibuster, which is like where you literally stand up and you can't, like you lose the floor if you sit down. Um, although I'm not sure about that. So don't quote me. But anyway, um, so they don't have those 60 votes to um, make any changes or to get rid of the filibuster altogether. So then the next course of action there, which has taken place in the past, is um, basically doing like a carve out of the filibuster. So saying that certain provisions are not like under the jurisdiction of the filibuster. So one thing that uh, currently has that carve out is um, confirmation hearings. You only need a simple majority um, in a confirmation hearing, which is going to be important as we talk later on. Um, but basically, you only need, yeah, you only need 50 votes to confirm uh, somebody in the Senate. And so Schumer was like, all right, well, we already have this precedence. Let's do another carve out for voting rights legislation. A great idea, except for the fact that, guess what? You need 60 votes to uh, implement a carve-out of the filibuster. And guess how many votes uh, uh, the, the Democratic leadership in the Senate have? Not 60. And so 
the, the, the funny thing was when this was all going on, which is like last week, the week before maybe, um, all of the pundits, all of the journalists were like, what is he doing? Like, what's going on? Do you know that this is just literally not going to work out? There's no way this is going to work out. It's just going to be embarrassing. Why is he pushing ahead with it so aggressively? The answer is, I don't know, and I don't really think anybody knows, um, because the vote happened. Everything got pushed through. Um, the initial vote to get rid of the filibuster didn't work out. The vote to override the filibuster on the, this legislation didn't work out. Um, then the, the vote to do the carve-out of the filibuster didn't work out. So it's just like failure, failure, failure after now. And high-profile failure. That's the really important thing. I think that's the, the crux of all of this, is that all of the failures have been so high-profile. For the Biden administration, for Democratic leadership overall, all of the... Um, all the failures have been so high profile. They've been these huge pieces of legislation. And almost all the successes have been so um, hidden, so undercover. And they've been spun in a way that's so aggressive. And I don't understand how the Republican communication staffs are so good at spinning all of these things so fast and so aggressively against Biden. Um because, you know, you can go anywhere and see this long list of successes and even like the economic growth of the, within the Biden administration. People are like, well, that's not real. It's like, I don't I don't understand how you're spinning like job growth and GDP growth against the president. But it is what it is. Um, so, again, another super high profile, embarrassing loss for Democratic leadership. And um, what was Schumer's goal? What 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 did he actually want to do? My feeling is that he just wanted to force all these people to put their names down next to being against, a, like, a fairly popular piece of legislation. Like, voting rights legislation is not as popular as, like, gun control legislation, but it's, like, you know, it's pretty up there. I don't have the exact numbers, but I feel like last time I read something, it was, like, it was like you know, 60, 60% approval rating, which is, you know, pretty good. Uh, I think of people in a lot of swing states... He's just trying to, like, loosen, loosen up their control over those seats by making them vote against popular pieces of legislation, which is all well and good, except for that this particular issue is more popular among activists than, than, than you know, around regular people, which is important because activists are the ones that are donating and activists are the ones that are volunteering and they're the ones who are making the most noise. So you have to get the activists on your side because you're not really going to win without them. So that's all well and good, I guess. So, I don't know. I, I, I guess, now, you know, now that I'm talking talking it out more, I guess it makes sense that the, the Democratic leadership wanted to do something for those activists and say, you know, you, we said we were going to do something on voting rights legislation. You're mad at us for not doing it. So here you go. We're doing it now. But it didn't work out. And so it's even more embarrassing because they said, oh, well, we tried our best and it didn't work out. But it doesn't really look like they tried their best. And so I think activists are even more frustrated um, that those things aren't happening, especially because if, um, you know, they really want to throw a bone to the activists, they would just like the uh, President Biden would just pass executive orders with all of these different things, especially, I mean, student loan forgiveness. It's like, there's there's so many different um, things that 
the administration and the Democratic leadership could do if they wanted to throw a bone to activists. And instead, they just did like a large scale failure on a, on a you know, national or international stage. So I guess that's neither here nor there. This also leads me to, I think, the biggest difference between Schumer and Pelosi. In my opinion, look, look, I think that we've, I've said this in the past, I think. Nancy Pelosi, whether or not you agree with her politically, whether or not you think that she should be in office or not because she's been there for a million years, blah, 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 whatever you believe, she is a good Speaker of the House. She's a good, she is good at controlling the caucus. She gets done what she needs to get done and she doesn't take silly votes. Schumer, I think, is a little bit more untested in the majority leader job. Um... And so I think he is taking silly votes and he is pushing for the wrong things because he doesn't have the same experience as um, as Pelosi in managing the caucus, right? The Because the House Democratic Caucus is wild and unruly. The House or the Senate Democratic Caucus, also wild, probably not as unruly because there's only really two people that you need to worry about, um, whereas you're really balancing a lot more in the House. So I think the difference between the way that the House um, side is run and the difference between the way the Senate side is run is very significant. And I think that it just goes to show, like, he's Schumer is working on it, but he is not quite up at the level that he needs to be uh, in terms of just straight, like, political will and political know-how. And again, of course, I say that having never served a day in the U.S. Senate. Meanwhile, Chuck Schumer has been in the U.S. Senate, I think, since the 80s probably before that. But anyway, so what do I really know? This is just, again, my feelings, my thoughts, my opinions. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see also, um, I mean, probably, you know, knock on wood, where's my wood? Okay. Knock on wood. Um, if slash when we lose the um, Senate, I say we, because I have a political bias, flashing red lights, Flashing, flashing red lights. I have a political bias. Okay, anyway. Um, the uh, when, when we inevitably lose the House in 2022, and likely when we lose the Senate in 2022, well, you know, we'll get into that. But um, it is 2022. It's a midterm year, tangential, but it's a midterm year. Very exciting. Um. It's going to be interesting to see if Schumer can get anything done within the next year of his term as majority leader. Because who knows the next time that he's going to be in that position. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see if he's able to pull anything off, if he's able to grow kind of as a majority leader in this particular like political environment. Uh, whereas Pelosi, I think, kind of slid right into it just because she has had, again, had more time in that leadership role, I think. But anyway, so that's where we stand now. With voting rights legislation, with leadership in the House and Senate, with all these things. What now? What's next? So Democrats really need a big, high-profile win, like I talked about. Can't have anything that can be spun as a negative. Um, so because the only really big positive right now that we see, big again, like high-profile, big legislative success is the infrastructure bill, which is a big deal. And it was like a big deal that it got passed. But, you know, it's, it's, people are spinning that already and their, their Republicans are taking credit for it and blah, blah, blah. Um, so it's just not a big enough success at this point to tide 
voters over until 2022. Because when they look back and they can only think of one big piece of legislation that this House passed, they're not going to like that, even though voters have a short attention span, like a short memory range. So what's the Senate going to do? What are they, how are they going to fix this? The first thing that they've talked about a lot is that is um, going back to Build Back Better and taking it from that huge omnibus bill to um, like kind of splitting it up into a lot of smaller packages. So then they're going to take one individual program at a time, vote on it in- individually, and then eventually they'll get some kind of semblance of a extremely pared down uh, version of Build Back Better. Um, it's probably good. I mean, it's it's as good as they're going to get. Best case scenario would have been them getting the entire package the way they wanted it in the beginning and then moving on and then riding off into the sunset. Um, but this probably is the best case scenario for them at this point because um, there's enough provisions that Republicans will probably jump on. So not only can they say, oh, look at all these provisions we got passed, but also, look, we did it in a bipartisan way because, look, there are some Republicans that voted with us on a couple of these issues. Um, so things like the child tax credit are, like, extremely popular that I could totally see a couple of Republican senators um, jumping into. So, again, he can be successful, Biden can be successful and bipartisan, which are two of his favorite things, I think. Um, this issue, however is going to um, really, really anger House progressives. And we talked about when that really late night months ago when um, McCarthy did his magic minute. What happened there was the um, they basically made the, the agreement that they were going to pass both Build Back Better and infrastructure back-to-back with the promise that Build Back Better would get through. And all of those different climate provisions and all those important programs that the House progressives really, really wanted would actually make it through in the end. Um, And, of course, if all these programs don't actually end up getting through and these House progressives voted for this infrastructure bill for for not, they're going to be really, really mad. And I remember um, like talking on the phone with my parents after that vote and basically saying this exact same thing of like, if the Senate can't get it done, it's going to cause irreparable damage to the caucus overall, because I don't see them getting over it, frankly. I think they're going to be really, really mad Um, because there's all these programs that they promise their constituents and that they really want. And this like quid pro quo situation, haha, um, is just not going to work out for them. And I personally really thought that it was going to, I don't know why I thought this, frankly, I shouldn't have thought this, but I thought that it was going to pass just simply for that reason, because the um, Democratic establishment really can't risk um, angering the the progressive caucus just because it's big and it's rowdy and it's loud and they make their, their, their wishes known very clearly. Um, and I just think that they didn't want to didn't want to mess with that. However, here we are, a couple months down the line, and we're just getting that same situation. And so, if Build Back Better doesn't get passed, if a lot of those different pieces of legislation don't get passed, I could see, I don't know, some kind of challenge vote to um, Pelosi's leadership uh, next term or something. Nothing good, basically. There's gonna be there's gonna be some rupturing. There's gonna be some friction within the caucus. Um, so that's one solution. Split up Build Back Better, take it into a bunch of parts, vote on a bunch of things. Okay. The other thing with specifically voting rights legislation um, 
is they're either going to like table those pieces of legislation until later or they're going to um, take up different voting rights legislation. And there's a bill that's currently on the floor. I think it's bipartisan. Um, that's called like the Electoral Count Act or something like that. Uh, and it's basically a piece of legislation that just like clarifies um, the, the rules for counting the Electoral College. So basically there's no uh, way for somebody to challenge the actual... Um, you know, counting of the electoral votes, like what happened on January 6th. So it's basically just like clarifying the law um, and making sure that it's clear that there's no way to like override the legitimate will of the people, at least theoretically. So those are the two things that are likely going to happen. Um, and then maybe the Senate is going to take up those, those pieces of voting rights legislation later um, if they manage to extend their... Um, majority at all in the Senate in 2022. They'll likely take up those things again, um, but it's it's a little messy. Um, the Senate is, they're supposed to go in recess. I think they're still um, in session. They're taking up a lot of different pieces of legislation. They're doing a lot of work right now, um, but it's the Senate. It's annoying and nothing ever happens. And um, anyway, get rid of the Senate. That's That's it. That's, you know, that, there we go. That's the main takeaway from the last 20 minutes of this show is get rid of the Senate. No more. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. Okay. That's all I want to talk about on voting rights legislation. Obviously, all of as, as always, all these things are going to continue to make appearances. Um, but it is definitely just going to be interesting to see what priorities the Senate takes up next and if they can actually get anything done without any kind of embarrassing failure again. All right. Moving on, um, next thing I want to talk about, we're going to uh, go out of our little um, domestic policy bubble, of course, talk about probably the biggest story of the week. Pretty much every news article you see is going to be about this, uh, but the uh, potential upcoming World War III. How many times do we say that? How many times do we say, oh my gosh, it's going to be World War III? Many, many times. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I feel like I notice people saying it all the time. It's like every two years... There's some, or, you know, I feel like it's every year there's some kind of um, international conflict that's like, that's it, guys. Better start getting ready for the draft. Like, this is it. I don't know. I don't know enough about foreign policy to really make that determination, but regardless. Um, so, yes, tension has been building between Russia and Ukraine. Um, Russia has currently been building up, over the last week, they've been building up forces along the Russian border. Um, uh, along the Russian-Ukraine border, and Putin has said that they aren't planning on invading, but there's, you know, there's there's satellite footage and there's eyewitness testimony of, like, all of these. I think the article I read said, like, 100,000 troops and tanks and missile launchers and all these things just, like, building up along the border. Why, why is that, Russia, if not to invade? Um, this this is, comes from a lot of, like, long-lasting tensions, Whatever, we're not going to go into a history of the Soviet Union here. Um, but basically, Ukraine has always wanted to join NATO. Um, they aren't members of NATO, but they have kind of like quasi-NATO protections. Um, and then, obviously, Russia feels that's kind of a threat to their border um, because it's like right there. They kind of feel this like possession of Ukraine, I guess. It's whatever. You, you, you don't need me to explain the history of Russian-Ukraine aggression. But basically... Um, Russia has been building up all these troops along the border. They say that they're not going to invade, but they're basically saying, like, but we're going to invade if you don't do all these things for us. Um, 
And so this is causing, obviously, an international incident because um, Russia can't invade Ukraine without, like, an explicit reason, um, some kind of explicit provocation. Um, otherwise, they're going to risk kind of a really, really negative international reactions from the entire world. It's a clear breach of sovereignty rules, international law, whatever that means. So it... Um, it appears at least that Russia, or at least Russia was, going to set up a kind of like undercover operation to give Russia a reason to invade. So they're basically going to um, like put a Russian officer undercover, um, like as a Ukrainian officer, and then kill some, some other Russian officers to basically give them the provocation that they needed to, to go over the border. But the British found out about this, um, and they basically exposed it before they could do it. So now if it happens, it's pretty obvious what went down. Um, so they also planned on, on, on ousting the current leadership in the Ukraine, um, Zelensky, and then replacing them with kind of Russia friendly figureheads, upsetting and concerning, obviously. Um, so the, 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 the posturing between Russia and Ukraine isn't rare. I feel like, I feel like the same situation happened a couple of years ago. Um, but the U.S. and world response is, is particularly important in this situation. The NATO response, obviously, and the U.N. response and all these things. Um, the, the, the domestic policy, maybe not domestic policy, but electoral implications of this in the U.S. is very, very important. Um, because there's this, there's this tension in the U.S. between being in a place where they do not belong quasi-Afghanistan situation um, versus kind of, you know, quote-unquote standing up against Russian aggression. Um, and so Biden is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place in this situation because there's no winning, right? If he says, we're not going to give um, weapons to Ukraine, we're not going to support Ukraine, we're just going to let them do what they need to do, whatever, um, he, he's going to look like he's weak on Russia. And they're going to be like, why, you know, certain um, opposition is going to be like, why do you love Russia so much? Like, why do you want Russia to take over Ukraine? Um, but on the other hand, if he sends troops, if he sends weapons, if he sends any kind of artillery in any way, I guess, they're going to say, oh, like, you just want to get us into another forever war. And like, after that botched um, um, exit from Afghanistan, like, you just you just want to get us back into another war. Just like objectively untrue. Also, the exit, whatever. I can't get into, I can't get back into the exit from Afghanistan because that's all we talked about last semester and I uh, can't talk about it anymore, but it bothers me the way that that's been spun. Anyway, um, so the U.S., I think, doesn't want to leave Ukraine high and dry. They don't want to be perceived as weak on Russia. They also don't want Russia to continue to, like, push in. Um, but... The U.S. also feels pressure, obviously, to protect NATO allies that are, um, you know, around the around Ukraine, obviously, because Ukraine isn't in NATO, but wants to be, but all their different allies are around. Ukraine falls, the whole place is a little bit more vulnerable um, to rushed aggression. They don't want to leave Ukrainian leadership high and dry. They kind of maybe have to, um, just because the domestic political situation in the U.S. is so fraught right now um, that it just might not be, um, like, like politically possible um, for the United States to get super involved in this situation. Um, and Zelensky wants more, like, tangible support from the West. Um, 
like Germany, I think for one has said that they're not getting involved. Um, the British have been involved in negotiations, but I think they're trying to, they're, they're not declaring that they are giving any troops or anything like that. Um, so kind of, I think every country is kind of in a similar, um, politically tense situation where it comes to kind of international relations like this. And, um, but the other thing that was interesting was that Zelensky yesterday said that, um, he kind of thought that the U.S. might have been, like, blowing it out of proportion and, like, causing a panic on purpose. And then General Milley said in a um, press conference that, like, no, if if Russia invades Ukraine, which they have every, you know, they have they have the, absolutely have the means to do, it's going to be extremely bad and extremely violent. Um, so it's just, like, interesting tension between American intelligence and Ukraine intelligence, um, kind of, like, the, giving those two different ways that they, to, 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 like, manage the situation. I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting. Um, they're currently switching between, like, military and diplomatic negotiations. So there's been a whole negotiating team talking with Putin, and, and Putin just wants to stop NATO from expanding towards Russia. So they're basically saying if there's a, a quote, red light on NATO expansion, they won't invade or, you know, they quote unquote won't invade because it's all very like Putin isn't even saying that he has the means to invade when he absolutely does. It's all, you know, covert political maneuvering. Um, so, but the, the, the U S and the rest of NATO has obviously said like, no, you can't stop us from expanding NATO. You can't stop us from doing what we do with NATO. Um, and so they're kind of at a stalemate there. So negotiations are ongoing. Russia is still poised to invade. It's unclear in what way the U.S. will back them up. It's unclear um, whether the rest of NATO will show up in any tangible way, either um, financially or, you know, with troops. Um, and then I think the, the main takeaway here, again, from a domestic policy standpoint, um, is that there's a lot of comparisons here between the situation in Afghanistan, situation in Ukraine. Is this fair? I don't know. But the, the point is... Neither of these actors have anything to do necessarily with the United States home front, I suppose. They have things to do with the United States, like, military strategy um, in the rest of the world. But they don't, you know, the, what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, what's going on, what went on in Afghanistan does not have, like, a tangible effect on American lives right now. So it's these two wars, these two conflicts um, that the, the U.S. is going to involve itself in because they, they want to protect their own military, you know, strategies, whatever. The other thing there also is, does the U.S. have an obligation to protect, does the, does the U.S. have an obligation to protect people, to protect other countries from conflict, to protect other countries from other countries, right? Um, you know, we're the police, quote unquote, the police officers of the world. So what does that role actually mean in terms of, um, you know, as like, you know, the, the de facto leaders of NATO, as the de facto leaders of the, the world order, what's our role in protecting other countries? What's our role in these military conflicts where like we have real, really no skin in the game, but can we... But if we, if we stand back and we don't do anything about it, um, 
is the fall of Ukraine really going to be put on on the U.S.'s shoulders? And I think that's the big consideration that the Biden administration is making right now is just being unable to figure out whether or not um, they do have that responsibility and they do have that um, like desire to um, go out and support the Ukraine. So anyway, I think it's interesting, and I think that especially right on the heels of Afghanistan, um, there's just a there's there's a lot of political tension there, um, especially with international relations and any kind of like militarized conflict that I think Biden definitely wants to avoid again because there's been so many public failures um, that I just don't think that he wants another one, especially one that's going to cost actual American lives theoretically. Um, so that's going to be interesting. The the all of this kind of was just happening um, when Biden was having a kind of like a till you drop press conference. It was like two hours long. And he said a lot of things in that press conference that later had to be clarified by the White House. So I think it's clear, at least based on that, that they're still refining their policy. They're still figuring out exactly what they want to do. I think obviously they want to push forward with diplomatic solutions and everything like that first. Um, but yeah, Russia is aggressive and they're right on the border and they want to do what they want to do. Um, and again, in terms of World War Threes, I, I don't know, I feel like this did just happen like two or three years ago. And then, of course, you know, all of the situations with, with Israel and Palestine, that's been like, oh, it's World War Three. And then, you know, it's we, we live in a very politically volatile world and there's a lot of different people pointing weapons at each other. And uh, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that. Um, there, there's kind of all of these continual international conflicts uh, that we do have to to deal with very carefully. And the U.S. is at the center of a lot of them because the U.S. has forced themselves to be at the center of a lot of them. But case are So, um, and again, as I say, pretty much at the end of every story, this will continue to be a thing. We will continue to talk about um, Ukraine. We'll continue to talk about Russia of course, because when aren't we talking about Russia? Um, okay, last story of the week. Justice, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer has finally decided to retire from the Supreme Court. And he has been serving since 1994, was appointed by Bill Clinton. Uh, so he's been around for a good long time. Interestingly, uh, the other um, Clinton Supreme Court nominee was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, so now, after Justice Breyer finally retires, um, the all of the justices nominated from the Clinton administration will be off the bench, which is, I don't know, kind of interesting. It's just, you know, we, it goes to show, I think, how long-standing a lifetime appointment really is. Um, they've been around for a long time, and they've been informing judicial policy for a long time. Uh, so he's old. I think he's eighty. Eight. I don't know. I probably should have written that down. Um, so everyone thought he was going to retire pretty soon, uh, but he was. I think he was clearly waiting for the Republicans to be out of office before he retired, so he could be um, replaced by another liberal judge. Um, I think he also put it off for as long as he could um, because he. Definitely, obviously, if there's a Republican um, Senate, then there was going to be kind of an uphill battle with a Democratic nomination to the court. Um, and then obviously, if there was a Republican president in 2024 and he retired then, then they would appoint another conservative judge and then it would just 
not be a good situation for the Democrats <laughs> for a long time. Um, so I think he decided, you know, now's the time. Democrats control the Senate. Democrats control the presidency. This is going to be the best chance to actually get like a true liberal on the court. Um, and of course, Biden's pick isn't going to change the political makeup of the court. Breyer is a liberal. Biden's going to appoint another liberal. So it's all just kind of it's it's a wash. But again, it will give like a little bit more institutionalization to the liberal cohort on the bench. Because um, again, a lifetime appointment, if Biden appoints a 50 year old, the 50 year old is going to be on the court for 30 plus years. Uh, so it just makes that liberal group a little bit more safe. Um, and I think the, the interesting thing with the court and with um, appointments is that the um, I think that Trump's real legacy beyond everything um, is that he was able to appoint three Supreme Court justices in four years, three in four years. That's wild. Um, and that is going to like irreparably change the the balance of the court because all these lifetime appointments are going to be there forever. And so there's this deep, again, I, I use this word before, but like this deep institutionalization of conservatives on the court. And so appointing judges is such an important part of a president's legacy, I think, because they last forever and they're informing policy forever. And in turn, they're basically enforcing your political policy agenda for years, years, years after you leave office. I mean, let's just think about um, Stephen Breyer and Ruth Ruth Bader Ginsburg basically trying to implement Bill Clinton's policies for the past 30 plus years. 30, 30 minus 30 ish years. That's crazy. Um, And I think that's really important to think about and especially to think about in terms of like when we talk about how voting matters and voting for um, president matters and it feels like, oh, well, who really cares? Like nothing's actually going to happen anyway. And, and like I know that I say things like that and I goof around about like getting rid of the Senate and how like blah, blah, blah. But voting does have actual consequences and voting for president has real, real lasting consequences on um, not only presidential policies, which last for however long. But think about think about all those people that woke up in 2016 and they said, nah, Hillary Clinton's kind of boring. Like, I don't like her. I'm going to vote for Trump. And then Trump was able to change, you know, appoint three Supreme Court justices and then just go about his life and f- inform federal judicial policy forever, forever. Because they just like were like, eh, whatever, who cares? It doesn't matter. They either didn't vote or they voted third party or they did something else. That's crazy. That's crazy to me. But anyway, um, so that was kind of kind of a tangent. But anyway, I think it's interesting um, in terms of Biden's actual um, choice of who he's going to put on the bench. He said during his um, during the presidential campaign that he was planning on appointing the first black woman to the court. Um, if he does, which he has said that he will, um, she'll be the first black woman. Um, on the court, as I said, and then she also will increase the number of women to a record high of four um, individuals, so four out of nine. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, And so then those four justices will be Amy Coney Barrett, Sotomayor, Kagan, and then this new um, woman that they choose, that he chooses to appoint. 
So the current front runners, um, there's there's three, but I've really only heard two spoken about. But there is a third that's kind of like in the in the in the general vicinity. Um, so Katanji Brown Jackson, she's a U.S. Um, Court of Appeals judge um, for the D.C. Circuit. Harvard grad clerked for Justice Breyer, which I think is kind of funny. Also, kind of interesting is that she's related to Paul Ryan through marriage. Um, and so Paul Ryan has come out before and said, like, you know, she's great. You know, we disagree politically, but, you know, she's family, whatever. Um, so there's there is a, a thought, at least, that she'll be able to garner some Republican support if she does um, get chosen um, because Paul Ryan will kind of come out and say, uh, same things that he said in the past when she was getting confirmed for the um, Court of Appeals. Basically, you know, she has a lot of honor and dignity and believes in justice and all the things that they say about good judges. So that's kind of just like an interesting um, political connection there. Um, also, there's um, Leandra Kruger, and she is a California Supreme Court justice. Uh, she worked for the Obama Justice Department and clerked for Justice former Justice Stevens. Again, just like kind of a similar story, um, but still like entrenched in um, the Obama-Biden White House. And then there's, last but not least, uh, J. Michelle Charles. She's a South Carolina federal bench judge, uh, nominated to the D.C. Court of Appeals. Slightly more unorthodox choice because um, she did not go to an Ivy League school, undergrad, or for law school. And if appointed, she would be the only judge on the Supreme Court to have not gone to an Ivy League school. Which is crazy. It's 2022. Who cares about the Ivy League anymore? I don't know. I say that from my little GW bubble. So I'm allowed to be judgmental of the Ivy League. But, like, what does the, what does the Ivy League actually provide these days? Like, what... Whatever. Whatever, you know? Um, so those are the three three main choices right now. I've heard most people talk about the first two, so Katanji Brown-Jackson and Leandra, Leandra Kruger. Um, but it's, you know, it's totally possible that there'll be some other, um, some other people that um, come out of the woodwork, although Biden's been kind of uh, tight-lipped about um, his timeline on this, although I assume that they'll want to do it fairly quickly just because they want a big win and a you know Supreme Court justice getting confirmed is a pretty good high profile win that will dominate the news cycle for a couple weeks at least um so they're probably starting that 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 um process now I think he said that he'll release the list of um like the short list pretty soon and then on and on we've we've seen the um Supreme Court justice nomination confirmation process many many times in the last five years so uh yeah it won't be it won't be too rare this confirmation is also i mean it's particularly important for biden for several reasons that we've talked about um but it's also likely the only time biden is going to have the opportunity to actually appoint a justice um this is kind of his one go uh, to get somebody that he believes in on the bench, uh, unless something kind of drastic happens. We don't really see um, anybody on the court either retiring or dying within the next three years. Two, three years, yeah. Um, so it's just kind of, um, it, it's important for him to kind of take this opportunity and really get it right, um, just to give him some legitimacy on the domestic stage, on the world stage, and then also just to cement his uh, 
his influence a little bit in case he does not win re-election in 2024, which is, frankly, uh, unclear. Unclear what's going to happen in 2024. I really, really don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. But regardless, here we are. Um, and of course, you know, the, the, the bench is just an important thing. And we don't think about it enough, I don't think. But um, there's so many important judicial decisions that are extremely influential and extremely important. Um, and especially the things that are coming down the line now is, as we talked about um, last semester, straight up a, a, a total reversal of Roe v. Wade could be coming down the line right now. And there's, so there's, just, there's political consequences to voting. There's political consequences to the electoral choices that everyday people are making. And I think that's, I mean, it's, it's terrifying because it really is give, putting a lot of power in the hands of people who maybe <laughs> don't know what they're doing. But it's also, you know, democracy. It's, it's exciting and it's important, the fact that our actions have consequences, they have real-world consequences for a lot of people, including ourselves. Um, and so when anybody ever tells you that voting doesn't matter because people are just going to sit there and not change anything and they're going to just implement the status quo, point them towards the Supreme Court because there is nothing about the Supreme Court that is, that is about basically maintaining status quo, I think. So anyway, that is the story of uh, Justice Stephen Breyer. Um, we'll be watching that process very closely over the next several months, several weeks, and uh, yeah, so that's what I want to talk about there. Last but not least, my crazy political story of the week. Oh, guys, this one made me laugh, 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 laugh. I, Joe Biden, here's the thing about Joseph R. Biden. He pretends that he's, doesn't know what he's doing sometimes, I think, but he absolutely knows what he's doing. He absolutely knows what he's doing all the time. So anyway, like I said, he, um, Biden had a, a like a till you drop press conference uh, this past week, two hours long, just him standing up there a answering questions. Generally, I think thought to have done a pretty good job tangentially. I think that it was like pretty important that he stood up there and was able to answer all these questions and he did a pretty good job with it. Um, but as all the reporters were leaving, they were continuing to shout questions at him because that's what reporters do. And um, Peter Ducey of um, Fox News asked him a question about whether he thought that inflation was going to be an asset in the upcoming midterms ele midterm elections. And uh, Biden, on a quote-unquote hot mic, called Peter Ducey a stupid SOB, which I'm not allowed to say because we are on the radio and I'm not allowed to say those words, but you know what I mean if you know what I mean. Um, so... Very funny. And the full quote on inflation was, quote, no, it's a great asset. More inflation. What a stupid SOB. Cue me crying of laughter, crying, crying, screaming, throwing up. Um, it wasn't a hot mic. It wasn't a hot mic. He knew the mic was on. It wasn't even like he was pretending the mic wasn't on. Like he, he absolutely knew. He looked down at the mic and then said it full volume. He wasn't even whispering. Like, there's videos of it. It's on the transcript. It was not a hot mic, and that makes me laugh so much. Um, and then he had to, you know, people kind of lost their minds about it. He had to call Peter Ducey to apologize, which apparently Ducey said that this was the first one-on-one -on -one he's had with um, President Biden, which made me also laugh because it 
you know, called him getting, like, roasted and turned into a meme on the internet for him actually to have some one-on-one -on -one time with Biden, which is objectively hilarious. And, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't have any strong feelings about Peter Ducey, one or the other. Um, so anyway, I just think, you know, the, the, I love the show The West Wing. And I cue my dad laughing right now, who's listening, I assume. Um, I love the show The West Wing. And sometimes things are too close to The West Wing for comfort. And this is one of those things. Because there's a scene on The West Wing where President Jed Bartlett does basically this exact same thing. Where he pretends that the hot mic... It's like he pretends that it's a hot mic when he knows that the mic is on. And then he insults someone. It's like, okay. We, this, is, this is real life, isn't it? Isn't this real life? Is this a TV show? What's going on? But anyway, um, the the double standard also there between Joe Biden kind of calling someone out and um, all of the different heinous things that Donald Trump said throughout his presidency, personally hilarious for me. Personally hilarious for me. I mean, all the terrible, terrible things that Trump said, people like barely bat in an eye, but Biden is reported to, like, have a little bit of a dirty mouth, and people are going crazy. That's not presidential. He's not bringing us together, blah, blah, blah. Whatever. I th Let Biden curse. Let Biden curse at press conferences, and let me curse on WRDW, except for I won't, because I know I'm not allowed. Um, so that was just a fun story. Look up that video. It's very fun to me. It's very important to me. It's my new Twitter banner, uh, the, 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 like, screenshot of the transcript, just because it really made me laugh so much. Um, last but not least, little thing that I want to talk about is that Biden has a cat now. So that's kind of fun. What are the political implications of Biden being a cat person now? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But anyway, they got a two-year-old cat named Willow. And Willow is very cute. Willow is a very cute little cat. Um, and I'm happy for her. She's going to have a very pampered little life in the White House. Um... And so that just came, that just happened yesterday and it has no real political implications and it has no real influence on anything that we've talked about, all these really, really important, important stories we talked about today. But I think it's important that I inform you all that Joe Biden now has a cat and the cat is very cute. Um, but with that, that is all I have for you guys today. Um, thank you all for listening. If you were up with me bright and early this morn, um, I'm very happy to be back. I'm very happy for this to to kind of get back into this uh, swing this semester. We've got a lot of cool, cool, exciting things coming down the line um, with politics this semester, as always. So I'm really excited to cover it all with you guys. Um, if you want to interact with me on the Internet, suggest stories, um, like my Instagram posts. You can follow the show at Sheep Thrills Radio on Instagram, um, Sheep Thrills GW on Twitter. Um, I post all of my sources and a Spotify link to the show eventually. We'll see what my schedule ends up being like this semester, but regardless. Um, so if you ever wanted to see like where I got any facts, you'll be able to see that on my social media. Um, and again, you can, if you disagree with me, DM me politely. We can have a conversation. Uh, and I'm, yeah, I'm excited to talk to you all throughout this semester and really dive into, dive into the chaos of the midterm season together, hand in hand. But with that, that is all I have for this week. And I hope that you have a lovely rest of your weekend, a lovely rest of your Saturday. And I will see you next Saturday.
bright and early, 8 a.m. All right. Bye, guys.